Part 3 of Our Little Russian Cousin by Mary Hazelton Blanchard Wade. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marie Christian. Part 3 Not many miles from the fine city in which Petrovna lives are some other children whose home is very different from hers. Their parents are peasants who were serfs not many years ago. A serf was one kind of slave, for he belonged either to the emperor or some rich nobleman. He could be bought and sold just like a horse. But the grandfather of the present czar said, My people must all be free. No human being in my empire shall be a slave any longer. That was the end of serfdom. But these people are still very, very poor. Few of them can read a book. Many of them are lazy and fond of strong drink. They live in little villages all over Russia. There are more peasants than all other classes of people in the country. Petrovna's papa must soon go to one of these villages on business. His little daughter is going with him. She is sorry for the poor peasants. She wishes she could give their children some pretty playthings like hers. She carries a new red skirt for a little girl there whom she knows. The village looks very bare in the winter season. It is still more so in the summertime. No trees, no sidewalks, scanty gardens, and scarcely what you could call a street. Only wide pathways between the rows of huts, which are huddled together. There is only one two-story house in the place. This is owned by the storekeeper or village merchant. He sells the peasants everything they need to buy. He is not of the peasant class himself. He came to live here in order to make money out of these poor men and women. The village well, from which everyone in the place draws his water, is near his house. On the side of the well hangs a sacred picture, so that everyone who comes there may worship first. On the front of each hut are three little windows, close together. The sashes and frames are painted a bright red or perhaps a gaudy purple. The Russian peasant is very fond of color and will work hard for the sake of a new red shirt for himself or a yellow skirt for his wife. The porch and doorway are on one side of the hut. In summertime an earthen kettle hangs down from the roof, and as the father comes home from his work, he will stop a moment and tip a little water out of the kettle over his hands. He rubs them together and wipes himself on the tail of his shirt. This is the only washing he has except the weekly steaming in the village bathhouse. Look at the flocks of pigeons around the house. They are very tame. They appear well-fed and fat. In Russia, the pigeon or dove is a sacred bird and is never harmed. The rough peasant will share his last crust with a pigeon. Petrovna goes to the door of one of the cottages and passes inside. Oh dear, how close the place is. It smells strongly of the cabbage soup boiling for the day's dinner. Only one small room in the house. Yet there is a large family of children living here, besides half a dozen shaggy-haired dogs. With the exception of the big brick stove, there is no furniture except what the father made himself. In one corner of the room is a rickety table. A narrow bench is built against the wall on two sides of the room. There are no chairs and no beds. How do they get along? And yet they seem quite happy and comfortable. 
Papa and Mama sleep up on top of the big stove. The older children sleep beside them. Don't worry, my dears. They do not get burned, but like their hard, warm bed very much. The logs burn down to ashes in the daytime. The bricks are just pleasantly warm by night. But the little girl to whom Petrovna has brought the dress, and her three-year-old brother, where do they sleep? On the benches against the walls. If they should have bad dreams and tumble off in the night, it would not matter so very much, for the bench is near the floor. When meal time comes, the family does not gather around the table, for as I told you, there are no seats that can be moved. They sit on the benches, and the table is therefore kept in the corner of the room. They can sit at only two sides of it, of course. But I have not yet spoken of the most important thing in the house. It is the icon, or sacred picture. The priest blessed it before it was brought to the home. There is a place for a candle to burn in front of it, but these poor people cannot afford to keep one lighted all the time. This picture has no gold upon it, like the one in Petrovna's house. It cost only a few pennies, but it is sacred nevertheless. The family gives it reverence many times a day. It is never forgotten as they enter the room. It sometimes happens, I am sorry to say, that the father comes home the worse for taking strong drink. Perhaps he cannot walk straight and hangs his head from side to side. But when he opens the door, he remembers to turn to the sacred picture and cross himself before it. Although there is so little furniture and so few windows, the room looks bright and gay. The table is painted a gorgeous red, while the benches are a brilliant green. Black bread made from coarse rye meal, cabbage soup, weak tea, for they cannot afford to have it strong, are the daily food of the peasants. If they can get some buckwheat and dried herring once in a while, they think themselves well off. They have many happy times, these poor people of Russia. When work is done for the day, they dance and sing and play upon the concertina, if anyone in the village owns one of these cheap musical instruments. When Petrovna takes out the red dress for the little girl and a large package of buckwheat which Mama has sent to the family, everyone in the house shouts with delight. It seems as though they could not thank her enough. Even the dogs wake up and begin to bark in excitement. In the midst of it all, Petrovna's papa calls for her. She must go back to the grand city and her fine home. She will forget for a time that all children in the world cannot be as well-dressed and well-fed as herself. Petrovna has never yet been far away from St. Petersburg. She longs to go to the beautiful white-walled city of Moscow. Her mama has been there and has described its beauties over and over again. It is a long journey from St. Petersburg. As you draw near the city, a blaze of color is spread out before you. Domes of red and gold and purple are shining on the hilltops in the glorious sunlight. Churches and towers and palaces are without number and differ from each other in shape and beauty. Moscow is a mass of color made of countless gems and countless tints. In the midst of the city is the Kremlin, or citadel. But the Kremlin is not one building. 
It is really a fortress surrounded by a massive wall that encloses many palaces and cathedrals, beautiful gardens and stately convents. Great gates open into it, and each has its story. One of them is called the Nicholas Gate. A picture of St. Nicholas, whom the Russians worship, hangs over it. At one time, the French were at war with the Russians. They stormed this gate and split its solid stonework, but the picture was unharmed. It is a miracle, the people said. There is a picture of the Virgin over another gate. The French tried to get this picture, but they did not succeed. This was another miracle, all thought, and no one passes through that gate now without taking off his hat. Within the Kremlin are other sacred pictures which the people believe can work miracles. The oil of baptism is prepared and blessed by the high priest in a certain cathedral in Moscow. It is sent to every church in Russia that all newborn children may be baptized with it. Petrovna's mama went to the city of Moscow when the Tsar was crowned. He could not be formally made emperor in St. Petersburg. That was not to be thought of. All czars must be married as well as crowned in Moscow, and until the time of Peter the Great, all have been buried there. The coronation of the present czar was the greatest spectacle of modern times. Petrovna hears her mama sigh when she tries to describe it. Everything was so grand and shining and gorgeous. Processions and fireworks, music and feasting, everybody pleased and gaily dressed, men in silk and velvet, ladies sparkling in satins covered with pearls and diamonds, the double-headed eagle, the bird of Russia, showing its gilded crowns everywhere. In the evening there were no rockets and Roman candles, but fireworks that were constantly shining, while the fronts of the buildings were covered with candles burning in glass globes. Such horses, such elegant carriages, and such fine parks to drive in! And through the city ran the river, reflecting the lights from all sides. There were days and days of feasting from the time the new emperor arrived in the city. He appeared in the grand procession mounted on a snow-white horse. He was dressed very simply in dark green, wearing a cap of astrakhan. Behind him came a great array of princes and grand dukes. Next came the emperor's mother in a carriage drawn by eight superb horses. After this appeared the carriage of the empress. It was all of gold and also drawn by eight snow-white horses. How the crowd cheered, and cheered again! If this could show how devoted the people were to their ruler, their love could not be measured. The governor of the city came out to meet the Tsar and presented him with bread and salt. These are the emblems of trust and friendship. Then the royal family rode onward till they came to a little chapel where the emperor and empress alighted. They passed in alone to worship. Now to the Kremlin, where a multitude was waiting for them. There were thousands of the peasants who had traveled hundreds of miles on foot. They wished to see, if only for one moment, the head of their church and state. There were princes and officers from every country of the world. There were Chinese mandarins, Persian rulers, wealthy Indians, people of all colors and races, 
and all were dressed in the richest robes that money could buy and art design. Such a mass of color, such sparkling of precious stones, such a wealth of satin and lace and velvet and cloth of silver and gold. After his entrance of triumph into the city, the emperor and empress retired from the public eye for three days. They must fast and pray until the time that the czar should be crowned, else they would not be in right condition for this ceremony. But the others in the crowded city did not fast. The days were given to pleasures of all kinds, eating, drinking, music, and dancing. At last the czar was crowned. It was in the cathedral where all other czars have been crowned before. He himself put on the robe and collar and assumed the crown of empire. The heavy crown of gold was placed on his head by his own hands. He then made a noble prayer for himself and the great empire and for the millions of people who are his devoted subjects. How fair and strong and kindly was his face! Never had Petrovna's mamma seen anything so grand or so solemn. She stops and repeats a prayer now for the good Emperor Nicholas II. When the ceremony was ended, there was a ringing of bells all over the city. Hundreds of cannon were fired. Then more feasting and merriment followed for days yet to come. Free dinners were served every day to five thousand of the poor. The Tsar did not forget them. They feasted as they had never done before in their lives. At last came the great day of the festival. It was called the People's Fete. Everyone was welcome. There were shows of all kinds that you can imagine. There were concerts and plays, boxing and fencing matches, trained animals, everything to make the people happy. Overlooking it all sat the Tsar in a grand pavilion. All the lords and ladies of the land were about him. How delightful it was! Petrovna's mamma leans back in her chair and smiles softly to herself as she thinks of that joyful time. On many a winter evening, as they sit around the big porcelain stove and sip the tea, Petrovna and Ivan beg for stories. They like fairy tales best of all. Their favorite one is the story of Frost. Perhaps you would like to hear it. End of part three.